So. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, wait. This is not uncomfortable, but it's very weird. This is the thing? This is the one. Absolutely. And now it almost couldn't have happened in a better way. Where did you want to be? So it was just like, ah. Oh. <laughs> am I funny? Now if I go over here, am I still funny? Better strategy. Yeah, a way better strategy. I never thought about that. Yeah, it's a work. I don't see it five years from now that you're not my most famous friend. You really have to commit to something. Good to have some appreciation. That's cool. That was really cool. Yeah, it might have been cool. This is On the Cusp. Hello, I'm Ben Green, and welcome to On the Cusp. This week, my guest is Nicole Byer. Nicole has appeared on shows like 30 Rock, The Birthday Boys, and Chelsea Lately. She's a member of UCB teams like New Money and Search History, and she's one of the stars of the MTV show Girl Code. If this is your first time listening to On the Cusp, thanks for giving it a try. I hope you'll consider subscribing to the show on Stitcher, SoundCloud, or on iTunes. This week's episode is sponsored by the restaurant Thai Pepper at 6219 Franklin Avenue in Los Angeles. We are also sponsored by the new novel, The Happenstances of the Yellow County Community Swim and Racket Club, The Summer Before Last, by Peter L. Harmon. Happenstances is a funny, nostalgic novel about a group of misfits who work at a local pool, and it's meant for young adults of all ages. I can attest to that as a 28-year-old who recently read the book and loved it. And I'm not the only one. Reviewers are calling the novel charming, reminiscent of John Hughes, and a fresh and enjoyable summer read. So go out right now and get your copy of Happenstances. You can order the ebook or paperback at tinyurl.com backslash thehappenstances. And if you want to find out more info about the book, you should go to peterlharmon.com or listen to episode 21 of this podcast where I actually got to have Peter on as a guest, which was really, really fun. The Happenstances at the Yellow County Community Swim and Racket Club the summer before last. Summer is here. So Nicole Byer is one of the coolest people I've ever met. She's unbelievably funny. She's incredibly generous. She's kind. And she's just crazy fun to be around. Um, and I could tell you guys a bunch of things that I love about Nicole, but I thought a fun thing to do might be to bring uh, my wife on the show, uh, Madeline. Hi, Madeline. Hi. Um, we got married about two months ago, mm -hmm. and Nicole was one of your bridesmaids. Yeah. So I thought it might be fun for you to tell uh, a couple reasons why you think Nicole is cool. Um, let's start with, uh, I remember you telling me uh, the story of you're in a three-person group with Nicole, cat ladies. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, me and Nicole and uh, Marcy Giro, who you also interviewed I'm, I don't know why I'm telling you that. But. <laughs> oh, you're telling the audience that. Yeah. It's, oh, yeah. You're, you're, you're just plugging that episode. Everybody yeah, yeah. It's a great episode. Marcy you guys Jero, should listen Jero to it. episode. Um, so you're in this group, Cat Ladies, with those two women. Mm -hmm. And uh, you guys, I've seen pictures of you in kind of a crazy outfit in some of your shows. How did that come about? Oh, yeah. That was um, early on. In our friendship, uh, Marcy and Nicole and I really met each other because we were all put on the same Herald team, uh, which is an improv team at UCB. Um, and one day, one of our first sort of outings as the three of us was to a clothing store near LAX called Rainbow. And um, we went just kind of, I don't know, just for fun. And once we were there, we were looking at all the clothes and we sort of just realized we needed uh, to get matching outfits uh, and we found these giant 
metallic tiger shirts that were like the kind that are like sort of short in the front and very long in the back and these um pink and blue and gold sort of like sweat kind of sweatpants just just a truly uh insane and wonderful outfit and so we all got that outfit and all wore it to our herald show that night and um everybody was a little confused by it I think but it was uh just uh, so fun and with how our uh, three-person team got its name it's work called cat ladies and it's uh, not because anybody except for me really loves cats uh, it's because we have these shirts that have tigers on them but we just uh, I don't know that we couldn't think of a good name with tiger in it so we became cat ladies I feel like that says something pretty fun about Nicole and Marcy just that yeah I don't think every group of women in there <laughs> Uh, late 30s, late 20s, late 20s, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, in their late 20s, uh, would be ready to, like, jump into outfits like that. Well, this was so fun about Nicole is, like, she's just ready for anything. Like, you see it in her improv on stage, like, she'll just do absolutely anything and figure out a way to make it make sense and make it work, you know, and I think that's why people like watching her so much is because it's truly surprising because I feel like she surprises herself all the time on stage and it's like just makes her one of the most delightful people to watch um and then in life yeah Nicole will do pretty much absolutely anything you suggest like I you know even just little things you know like I remember um just recently we got ice cream one night and just spent like 45 minutes outside of a closed clothing store just like talking about how funny all the different pieces of clothing were you know and it was like just like a dumb clothing store with a lot of like weird uh acid wash denim basically it looked like a place where like old people go to pretend they're young enough to go to Coachella and we just found something funny about everything in there um even though it was just the window of a closed store. You know, I feel like just any... Nicole is always sort of ready for something kind of fun to happen. You know, and that makes her a really fun person to be around. I love that. And I've yeah. seen that too. Um, so guys, let's dive right in. Uh, here's my interview with the Ready for Anything, uh, always surprising and very delightful, Nicole Byer. Enjoy. <laughs> telling me about a dream you had. Will you tell about that dream? Yes. So I had a dream that I was going, I think it was going down. Yeah, it was definitely going down an escalator. And at the end of it, there was like a little dog going down it too. And then all of a sudden its legs started going in the escalator. So then I like ran down and pulled it out. And then its owner was like, oh no, I don't want that dog. So then I was like, oh, I guess I'll keep this little dead leg dog. <laughs> and I just carried this little dog around for the rest of my dream with its, like, dead legs swinging. Also, I never cleaned off its legs, so it just had, like, crusty blood all over them. Uh, and they were, like, they looked like like raw chicken legs. It was so gross. And th this was the last dream you had before you woke up? Yes. And what do you think it means? 
Oh boy, I don't, I can't even fathom what it means. <laughs> Maybe it's like I don't take good enough care of my dog. I don't think that's what it means. I never walk well, my dog. Well, yeah, that might be an insecurity you have that. Oh, maybe. Uh, but it's, it doesn't mean it's true. Maybe it's my like self-projecting that I don't really take. But you say you you dog. never walk your dog. No, John does. Oh, John walks. Because your dog. John was gone for a year, so John's been back for a year, and I was like, you walk the dog for a year. <laughs> <laughs> but I feed That's him. totally fair. I feed him. Because was this supposed to be your joint dog with yes. John? We co-own this dog, and then John got a job in New York and left for a year. Left me with this dog. I was like a single mom. <laughs> And then he came back, and then I was like, this is your dog. It was very much like a couple getting back together, but still, like, hadn't worked out things. It's like, I took care of this kid for a year. This is your kid, too. Do you have uh, weird dreams a lot? Or what, what, is your, what is your typical kind of dream that you have? Um, I do not have weird dreams often. I have weird dreams, or dreams that I can even just remember every couple months. And then sometimes they're like recurring dreams. Um, I once had a dream that I was with a boy that I liked in a tub of beef stroganoff. Because <laughs> <laughs> I went through a phase where I really loved hamburger helper beef stroganoff. So I would eat it every day. And then I guess it like got into like my brain. And then it was just like this very sexy dream in hamburger helper. <laughs> and I kept having that dream because I kept eating hamburger helper. <laughs> And then another recurring dream I had was uh, I would see my mom, and this is after my mom passed away. Uh, I would see her, and I would like be like, Mom! And she would look at me like she didn't know me, and then she would get into a white Ford Bronco, like, like uh, what's his name from the O.J. Simpson trial? Uh-huh. Cato Kalen. Would drive, and I don't know why it was a white Bronco, because my mother drove a minivan, and then she would like speed away, and then I'd try running after her, and then she'd be gone. And it was like a long time after the O.J. Simpson trial, so I don't know why it was O.J. specific, but I had that dream a lot. And then like that's about all I can remember. Oh, I have a lot of sinking dreams. I sink into things. Like what kind of things? Like mattresses. Like sometimes I'll wake up and I'll feel like, and I'll be like, oh, like I'll reach out to try not to sink, but I'm not sinking. And that's about it. That's beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> My brain is very strange. Uh, so, were you born in New York? No, I Where was born, born in New Jersey. New Jersey! Mm -hmm. What part? Middletown. What's Middletown like? Middletown is a lot... Okay, I used to be like, it's beautiful! But I just went back and I was like, oh, it's kind of not great. It's like just kind of like a basic suburban town. It's like there's a lot of trees. It kind of looks like Chapel Hill. It's like a lot of trees... Like houses, there's like a downtownish part. Uh, there's a lot of highways. Um, there's like cool, trendy areas like Red Bank, uh, and then Red Bank is right near it. Yeah. Oh, cool. Red Bank is super close. It's like the next town to me. So it's like Middletown is like the whole. But I live in. I grew up in a very small part of Middletown called Lincroft, and then Lincroft is right next to like Red Bank and Little Silver. It's very weird. Because, like, I went to Middletown High School South, but then I grew up in Lincroft, and I went to, like, Lincroft Elementary School, so it's, like, this big part with little parts. It's very weird. I, it's... <laughs> what did your parents do for a living when you were born? When I was born? And how they met each other. 
Okay, my mother was working at the University of Chicago, I believe as a secretary, and she was putting herself through school, and then my dad was a student, and my mom, I think, was maybe five years older than my dad, so she was an older lady, and I don't really, I don't know how they met Matt, but I think maybe she was tutoring him with English or something. I think she was helping him with English. I'm not quite sure. With English, did he not, was English not his first language? No. English was his first language. He was a, a science major, I guess, an oh, engineering okay. major. So, like, I don't think he was the best at English. Or, like, math and science was, like, his jam. And then, like, sentence structure was like, what is that? Um, so I think she was helping him with that. Or they just started dating. That's very foggy, because they're both dead, so I can't be like, hey, what was that again? And I don't think my grandparents, they're old. They're like, I don't know. Um, so then they started dating, and they both graduated, and my dad got a job at AT&T in New Jersey, and my mom stayed in Chicago, and then they like wrote love letters to each other and fell even more in love, and then he came back to Chicago, they got married, and then they both moved to New Jersey and had my sister, and then my mom was told she couldn't have any more kids, and then I came along! Like a miracle! Or an accident. Oh, okay. <clears throat> but she like, was told she couldn't have any more yeah. kids. And she, oh, like, she or she shouldn't have any more That she kids. couldn't. Oh, Because so I think she had cool. two miscarriages or one miscarriage before my sister, and then had my sister, and they were like, oh, we're so thankful, we love this girl. And then, I guess they kept raw-dogging, and <laughs> then they had me, and then they were like, oh, boy. Because <laughs> we were, my sister and I are a year and a half apart. And that's all the kids they had? Mm-hmm. I just have one sister who's older, but shorter, and doesn't look <laughs> older than me. But my mom worked at ANS when I was little, which is like a Macy's that wasn't around for a super long time. And then my dad worked at AT&T the whole time I knew him. Or maybe he worked at... I feel like it was AT&T the whole time. Maybe Bell South? When did they pass away? My mom died in 2002, because it was the year after 9-11. <laughs> Never forget. Uh, but forget when your mom died. Uh, October 2002, and then my dad died June 2005. All I know is I was 16 and then 21. And, and how did they? 2008. He died what? in 2008. How did they die? My mom had a thing called deep vein thrombosis, which is a blood clot in your leg that travels to your heart and stops your heart. And then my dad died from like a massive heart attack. Um... Well, I guess we'll we'll come back to those things because I want to I want to ask more questions about them. Okay. But um, going back in time, uh, what was your childhood like? I had a really good childhood. I feel like a lot of comedians have like terrible, terrible childhoods, but I had like a really good one. Um, my mom and dad they didn't really fight over real things. They would just be like, "Why did you buy more paintings?" And my mom would be like, "I don't know. I like them." <laughs> Um, we, I grew up in a, I won't say my mother didn't have style, but she really, she wasn't a great interior decorator. <laughs> like looking back, I thought everyone had pink kitchens, but that's like a weird color choice. Our kitchen was pink. Our dining room was pink. There was just a lot of pink rooms in my house, which is like, I feel weird. For, Any other weird flares? She would, if she liked a greeting card enough, she would have it professionally framed. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> so like, we, people would be like, "Oh, I love that painting." My mom would be like, "That's not a painting. That's a card that someone sent." 
Um, but she like got. <laughs> so yeah, and I still have some of them. There's like a Christmas card that she framed with like two little black angels with horns. Like I think like uh, they're just like playing a song or something. Maybe my sister has that one. And then she got really into finding prints and then having them professionally framed. And we would have this woman named Dory who came to the house and would like be like, are you sure you want more pink matting? And my mom would be like, yes. I guess my mom really loved pink. Her favorite color was red. So maybe she did everything pink because she was like, red's too aggressive. <laughs> um, but like me and my sister would like spend our days, like our weekends, like riding our bikes and like hanging out with our friends. And my dad would always go, don't go to anyone's house. And we never asked why. We would just go to the, like our friends' houses and hang out. And we'd come back and he'd be like, I said, don't go to anyone's house. And then later, much, much later, when I was like 20, I was like, why did you always say don't go to someone's house? He was like, oh, what I wanted was for you to like find your friend, come home, tell me where you were going to be, and then go back. And I was like, then why didn't you say all that? <laughs> It was just because we were always like, oh, our dad's so weird. He doesn't want us to hang out with anyone, but he just wanted to know. Where yeah, he was we being were. nicely protective. Yeah, but he just never finished the thought to be like, I mean, you can just come back and tell me. So like my childhood was filled with a lot of those things where you'd be like, well, why? Why can't I do that? And we would never ask until much, much later and be like, oh, we were allowed to do that. You think because he had like an engineer brain? Maybe. That was thinking in like this interesting way? Yeah, maybe. And my I know my brain just didn't work the same way as his. Like, we would constantly get into fights, and he would make us do math problems. <laughs> I hate math. Like, I really hate it. But he would, like, write out all these math problems, and we had to do these, like, worksheets before we could, like, go outside. And it was so annoying. And then he had, like, his, this TV thing where me and my sister, my sister loves TV. I'm pretty indifferent, but I just like laying down <laughs> so like I'll watch TV if I can lay down but we were only allowed to watch TV on Saturdays until one and then we had to go do something he'd be like get out of the house go do something go ride your bikes go do these math problems so he'd be like either go ride your bikes or do math and I'd be like fine I'll go ride my bike <laughs> <laughs> did it work at all you hate math but are you good at math from all this drilling no I'm not good at well I'm good at figuring out tips because it's very easy. Like, I don't understand why more people just don't understand how to do a 20% tip. You just move the decimal point one spot and then double that first number. That is it. So, like, I'm good at figuring out how much, uh, like, when things are on sale, how much they'll cost. Because then you just you just figure out that percentage. Mm -hmm. If you just do 10% and then multiply it by how, however much it is, that's how much you subtract from it, and that's the price of the item. Uh, but I like to play a game... When I pay for things with cash, I like to guess before it tells you how much you get back. And then when I hit it on the nose, I'm like, yeah. <laughs> Just it like, sounds like you're secretly <laughs> passionate about numbers. <laughs> Maybe. I mean, the older I get, the more I'm like, oh, I had so much in common with my dad. We only became friends like a year before he died. But like before that, it was just like fighting, fighting, fighting. What would the fights be like? Oh, I would just like do things and he would just get so mad at me. I remember in high school, I had a substitute teacher who legitimately was like, Nicole, sit down and do your work. And I was like, you have got to stop being a dumb cunt. <laughs> Which is like, at the time I felt so justified in calling this grown up a cunt. But now that I'm an adult, I was like, I'm, it was wildly inappropriate and like 
bad and I should not have done it. And when I got suspended, because I got suspended, my dad had to come pick me up and he was just like, where did you learn these words? And I was like, I don't know. And then he was like, what is wrong with you? And I'd be like, I don't know, what's wrong with you? And he's like, you can't do that. You can't turn that. There's nothing wrong with me. I just had to pick you up from school. I had to leave my job to pick you up from school because you called a woman a cunt. And then in that argument, I was like, I also got a tattoo. And he was like, what are you doing? Just, I would just like do these things that I felt completely justified doing at 17 that I like wasn't. And it like wasn't okay for me to do these things. And he just had to deal with it. What was your relationship like with your mom? My relationship with my mom was good and bad. She was like my best friend and I loved being around her, but I would also just like do things, like I would say nasty things sometimes because she was always around. She was like, she was one of those women who lived to be a mom, like that was like her end game. And she really, really loved being a mom and she was always at school with us. She was like a lunch aide and she was in the PTA. So like she was just always there. So like sometimes I would be like, I'd be like, ugh, nobody wants you around. And she'd be like, okay, well, all right, nobody wants me around. <laughs> and whenever I was mean to her, she always had a present for me. <laughs> and I don't, at first I'd be like, you don't really have something for me. And she'd be like, yeah, and she'd show it to me. And she'd be like, I bought you this, but you were just so mean to me, you can't have it. <laughs> and it happened- That's like a cartoon. All, it was like a cartoon. And it happened all the time, and when she died, we found a bunch of gifts that she had never given us because I was mean sometimes. Like, uh, there was these necklaces that were like for Catherine and Nicole when they turned 14 or something. And I'm sure when I turned 14, I said something nasty, so she was like, I'll just pack that back up and not give it to them yet. But uh, Like, I got my, I did track and field, and I got my Letterman jacket, and I think my mom was late to picking me up or something, and I was like, ugh, mom, I don't know why you can't be here when I need you to be here. I was like waiting like an idiot by myself, and then she was like, well, I was picking up your Letterman jacket. <laughs> and I was like, really? Okay, I'm so sorry. And then she like opened the, the door to the van, and there it was. And I was like, I'm really sorry. I didn't, and she's like, maybe you shouldn't just yell at people. You know, when they're late, maybe you should ask why they're late. It's like, I know, I'm sorry. So, like, we had a good relationship, but I was just like, I don't know. There's a whole thing, like, nature versus nurture. And my mom nurtured me a lot, but something in my nature, like, just made me a mean person sometimes. Like, I get irritated very fast, and I don't know why. Like, I'll talk to my sister on the phone, and she'll tell me something I don't care about, and I'll be like, I don't care. Like, in my brain, I'm like, I don't fucking care. But then it's like, just listen. Just be a normal human. Sometimes I have trouble being a normal human. But you're a very delightful person. Day-to-day <laughs> uh, -day in everybody's experience of you. <laughs> Thank you. Maybe I just, like, reserve that for, like, my family? I don't know. <laughs> well, were there a lot of signs of what you were going to end up doing when you were a kid? Like, um, were you theatery? Yes. I... When I was little, like one of my earliest memories is being in white underwear and a white undershirt with my white karaoke machine singing Private Dancer by Tina Turner. <laughs> I loved that song. I also didn't know it was about being a stripper. I just thought she was dancing for someone privately. <laughs> <laughs> and I, my hair wasn't done. It was just like a big, it was like a fro. And I was just screaming it, not even singing it, just like screaming it. 
And then, like, my mom, like, came out and watched, and I think she clapped when it was done, I think. And then I was, I don't know, like, that was my earliest performance, and I think I was, like, maybe two, three. Um, Whoa. But I wasn't one of those kids that, like, put on shows for the family. I, like, didn't have time. I was too busy ordering my sister around or, like, telling people what they were doing wrong. Um, but in high school, my mother was like, you talk a whole lot. And I was like, uh, whatever. And she was like, you should try out for the play. And I was like, okay. And it was um, a bunch of scenes from this playwright called Christopher Durang, like a bunch of shorts, and it was comedic. And I did this scene from a short called DMV Tyrant, and it's just about a DMV person who, like, just isn't helpful. And that first laugh I got during the performance, I was like, this is what I want to do. This is what I want to do forever. Those laughs. I love those laughs. And then I went to, like, performing arts college, and, like, that was the time. That was, like, that first laugh was the moment I knew that I didn't want to do anything else in my life, that that was it. So, like, I kind of found out a little later, I feel like people are, like, children, like, real children. They're like, I want to be a star. But, um, I, I've been, like, funny for a long time. My grandmother, my dad's mom, she's from Barbados, so she says well, a couple of, like, weird phrases. So instead of saying, you make me laugh, she'd be like, oh, you tickle me. And then that would be, like, a goal every time I saw her to get her to say, you tickle me. Or, like, oh, Nicole, you're too much. Uh. So, like, making my grandmother laugh is one of my favorite things to do. Um, is, she, is she still alive? Mm-hmm. And you still uh, see her a lot? I see her, like, once or twice a year. And then I'll, like, call her. But she doesn't like talking on the phone, at least not with me. She'll be like, are you making money? That's <laughs> the question she always asks. And I say, yes, now I am. And then she'll be like, are you going to go back to college? And I'm like, no, <laughs> no. Does she, does she get how well you're doing? <laughs> um, yes and no. Like, I'll tell, she asked me how much I made money-wise last year, and I told her, and she's like, that sounds good. Do you think you're going to make the same amount this year? And I was like, I don't know. Last year was, like, a extremely good year. I don't know about this year. And she was like, well, maybe you should take what you made last year and go back to college and become a lawyer. <laughs> I'm too old for that. Like, if I went back to school to become a lawyer, like, I'd be a lawyer at, like, 38 or 40. But it is weird, because Catherine, my sister, she goes and sees them once a week because Catherine lives in Chicago, and she'll show them my stuff. She'll, like, turn on the TV and be like, look, there's Nicole. Granted, when she shows them Girl Code, she'll mute it, and she told them that's how you have to watch it. Well, why? <laughs> because I curse on it. Oh. <laughs> and my family's, like, religious. I don't know. I'm, like, a real black sheep of the family. Like, I'm not religious. I don't like organized religion. I don't like that Christians don't like gay people, but then, like, other things that the Bible says is wrong is okay. In the Bible, it says you shouldn't eat shellfish. You know what black people love who are Christians? <laughs> Red Lobster. That you can't pick and choose. So I don't, a lot so, of different messages. Yeah, and I also think the Bible's... I think it's like it's like fables. It's like Aesop's fables. And then it's like, why do we pick and choose what's true and what's a fable and stuff like that? So were you going to church growing up? Oh, yeah. I went to church every Sunday. And how were you feeling about it then? Well, then I just did it because I was supposed to do it. But did you like feel like you believed in God inside of you? I've always felt like there's something higher. 
I didn't know if it was God or because they they would be like you we worship him and I'm like but why is God a him why why do, why do we have to answer to a man <laughs> why is this man in charge of all of us so then I I was still going to church but I was like I don't really think it's a him I think it's just an entity I think there's I think there's a higher being I don't know what it is because I don't know this life has to make some sort of sense in some way um, and have you had signs of that in your own life of like things feeling like there was God influence? Yeah, but I can't think of anything right now. Like, I feel like things have just like, like just when things line up, you're just like, I don't know. That can't just be luck. Like somebody was looking out for me, like something higher. I don't but know. maybe not a really nice man. Yeah. Not like a <laughs> nice man with like a white beard. Who's like, I am God. <laughs> Because that's creepy. That's creepy that this man is looking down at us at all times. No, I think there's just like a spiritual thing. But to go back to church, I, I went to church every Sunday. Sunday school, vacation Bible school in the summer. And it was just a lot. And then when my mom passed away, my dad would always be like, you should go to church. Your mom would like it. And I was like, yeah. But like, at that moment, I, I feel like really stopped going to church at first because I was like, well, I don't like God. If God took my mother away and that was like his whole plan, I'm not down with it. I don't like it. I think it's rude. I still needed her. I was 16. There was so much stuff. Like I, I was a very light bloomer. I don't think I even had my period yet. So it was just like, there was so much stuff I still need from that woman. So you're not my friend. I don't like you. I'm not going. So I just stopped going to church. And then later I was like, oh, I don't think I like organized religion. I don't like that the pastor of my church has his rent paid for. I understand that he, like, helps people all day long. But, like, his daughter lives there with her kids and all these other people live there. And it's like, why do I have to pay for that? I pay his car note and he's not driving a Toyota. He's driving a Lincoln. I don't like that. Why can't he have, the like, a basic, like, why does he get luxury when I don't and I'm paying for it? So, like, that's the thing about organized religion I don't like. I don't like them picking and choosing things to believe in. But the, the whole first thing was just like, you killed my mom. Or let her die. I don't, I don't know how that What was grieving your mom's death like for you? It was tough because you really find out people's true colors when, when you're like mom or someone very close to you dies. Because people come out of the woodwork and they're like, I'm here for you. Um, if you need anything, let me know, blah, blah, blah. And then the minute you're like, I need something, they're like, oh, I'm busy. And you're like, oh, okay, cool. And there was like five, five of my mom's good friends who like consistently followed up and checked on us. And I was like, those are true friends. Those were my mom's like through and through friends. Everyone else was bullshit. Um, and like, I still talk to like three or four of them today, they'll call me and be like, how are you? How is everything? And I'm like, yeah, like you, like you, you went above and beyond. But yeah, like everything, like people are just, they're filled with bullshit. And you really find that out when like, when like shit gets real. And then like after my dad died, that was even more like, yeah, like the, those people who were there after my mom died, who like even more became part of my life after my dad died. It was just like, yes, this is real. Like my mom's very good friend, Bertha, Bertha Hughes, beautiful, lovely woman. She was my godmother. I had two godmothers. My, I have a godmother in Chicago and a godmother in New Jersey. And 
I think we have the Godmother in New Jersey just in case something happened. We could stay in Jersey or choose to go to Chicago. Like if something happened much, much younger. So um, my sister was living with my dad's friend and that wasn't working out. So then she moved in with my Aunt Bertha and then Bertha didn't ask her for rent, didn't ask her for anything. And I think Heather may have ended up paying rent just like like out of, like this is what you do. And she let her stay with her for like a year no questions asked. She wasn't like, when are you leaving? She was just like, I'm here for you. And it was just like, that's, that's like real friendship. That was this woman who is friends with my parents and like, just like understood how to be like a good person and be there for somebody. Seeing that some people were filled with bullshit and other people weren't, do you think that uh, changed you in any way? Uh, or like changed the way that you try to be there for other people? Um, yes, I do think it changed the way that I speak to people in the way that I am. Because if I say, if you need to talk to me, you can. If I say that to you, believe it. Because I will pick up my phone. I will let you talk to me. Um, like, I'm there for you. Um, <laughs> if I feel no, a lot like, allegiance to you or, like, and, like, something terrible happens, yes, I'm very sorry for your loss, but, like, I wasn't there for you before, and it feels disingenuous to be for you, there for you after. Yeah. So it's not, like, a, a mean thing for me to not, like... So, like, if somebody dies or something or something bad happens to you and, like, we weren't friends before, I'll just be like, I'm very sorry for your loss. I won't add I'm there for you because why would I? That's not fair to me because now I'm lying, and it's not fair to you because it's giving you this false sense of something. So I try to just stay, I think after my parents died, I just learned to just like be honest in what I'm trying to do. Cause it's not, it doesn't feel great when people aren't honest. Yeah. What's your relationship with like with your sister? What was it like and what's it like now? My sister and I are very, very different people. She's, I'm big, she's small, uh, I'm loud, she's quiet. I love performing. If she never got on a stage, she would die happy. <laughs> that, would be, that would be her life's <laughs> yeah. way. She'd be like, I'll stay on her crates and it'll be like, never got on a stage and died happy. <laughs> um, she loves TV. I'm pretty indifferent to it. Like, I was on Netflix yesterday and I got overwhelmed because there was too much to watch. I was like, <laughs> there's too much ever. And then I was like, maybe Hulu will be better. And there was so much on Hulu. And then I just had to close my computer and go to sleep. So was, you're happier just making TV. Yes, I'd rather just make TV and make things for people to watch. I like just adding to the <laughs> oversaturation. But um, Catherine is very patient. I'm not, like, we're just really just opposite. So, like, growing up, uh, for a long time, I thought I really, like, did her a disservice because I was louder. Like, our grandmother would say, girls, are you hungry? And I would go, no, we're not hungry. And if she was, sorry. <laughs> Your voice won. <laughs> yep, I won. And one year, my mom was like, do you guys want, like, a video game system? Because they were popular. And before Catherine, she, like, I think she was going to say yes, but I was like, nope, they're for boys. <laughs> and then the next year, I was like, Mom, can we get a PlayStation? She was like, nope, they're for boys. So then we never got one. <laughs> and it's my fault. And, like, we wanted a pool for a long time. And then my mom was like, well, we can't trust Nicole. We'll tell her not to get in the pool, and she'll probably bring out stuffed animals and say I wasn't alone. So, like, we never got things like that. <laughs> and 
I'm like, if Catherine wanted a pool, like, sorry, I was a bad little egg. <laughs> um, so, like, growing up, we were always, because we were so close in age, a year and a half apart, so we were always together, and people always thought we were twins, and we were just known as the buyer girls, and we would, like, ride our bikes around town. We would just, like, play all day. And then we, like, got older, and she got really into school and was in, like, advanced things, and... I don't know, like, we took separate cars to school, even though we came from the same house. I was more interested in smoking weed, and not going to class, and barely graduating, and, like, moving to New York. Like, I, by that, like, by high school, we just had completely different interests. And where, what direction did she go off in? She went off to, like, a big state school. She went to the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign, which is, like, literally cornfields like when we dropped her off i was like are you gonna be okay here and she's like yeah i really like it and i was like there's a man down the hall with his door open playing john mayer are you sure you're okay with this and she was like i love it and i was like all right so we like left her there and she loved it and she graduated and then she went to loyola university for her master's and now she is a teacher's aide for special needs kids very cool yeah Whenever people are like, what does she do? I'm like, I, like, because in my brain, I'm like, she helps the children. So that's what I say. They're like, but what do you mean? I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah. She's a teacher, but she's like helping kids. So much patience. I couldn't do that. I would just be so irritated. And I went to a very small performing arts school in New York where I just did a lot of drugs, drank, and didn't learn very much. I didn't learn anything about like really performing or like, finding my voice till I found UCB. You were there for how long? What was this called, AMDA? AMDA. The American Musical and Dramatic Academy. <laughs> it sounds really great, but it like was not. It was not. How long were you there? Two years. And was there ever a moment where you were getting something out of it? Uh... <laughs> <laughs> this is gonna be the quote on their website. Uh... <laughs> no. <laughs> well... Karen Malpede was my theater history teacher, and I loved her immensely. Like, I loved her so much. Because uh, we... I spent a lot like a lot of time in high school reading plays. I, like, I didn't read books. I just read plays. I have so many plays in storage. And I had read all the plays in our curriculum. So, like, we could have, like, in-depth conversations about it, and all the other idiots in the class were like, oh, I didn't read it. I'm like, but why? Why wouldn't you read it? It's like, it's great. <clears throat> So she would, like, give me other assignments. She would let me read, like, other things, like, more current things. And then we would just talk about it. So, like, that was a good class for me. Um, I had this one teacher. Oh, what was her name? I can't remember her name. But she talked like this. And she'd go, people, people, people. I don't know why I don't ever do this in improv. <laughs> Probably because, like, a teacher told me once. I was like, nobody sounds like that. But I swear she sounded like that. And she told this amazing story that I'll never forget. She was like, what was her name? Oh, whatever. She goes, you're going to go to parties when you start performing in Broadway and Hollywood. And I went to a party once. And there was a bowl full of sugar and a bowl full of strawberries. And I dipped my sugar. Or no, I dipped the strawberry in the sugar. And people, it was cocaine. <laughs> and, I, and I don't think I've ever laughed so hard in my life. And then she was like, hey, settle down. <laughs> I was just like, what do you mean settle down? That's the most insane story I've ever heard, if it's true. 
those like the, all the teachers at AMDA were just insane people, and it really made me believe in that that saying those who can't teach because I was like none of these people can do anything. <laughs> They're all crazy people. So yeah, AMDA was not helpful. <laughs> and yeah, you put that on your website. <laughs> I don't tell very many people I went there because they like they really like any success you get. They're like, see, look what we did. Like Jesse Tyler Ferguson, who's on Modern Family, was on Broadway a bunch before he like hit TV, and that's all we heard about. We'd be like, you know, Jesse Tyler Ferguson, blah blah blah. And uh, Jason Derulo went to AMDA. He was a semester behind me. Were you? How surprised would you have been then to learn how successful you're going to be? Um, or did you kind of, did you always see this coming? Um, that's like, that's a tough question. I don't think I've always seen it coming. I think I've always known that I'll be okay. Whatever that means, like I'll be okay and people will like what I do however that means. But no, I didn't think I would become a personality, like that yeah. people would like me for me. I never thought that. I never thought I'd be giving people advice because like, I don't know, I've lived a very sloppy life. So uh, it's very weird to think that people sit at home and they're like, oh, that's good advice. Okay. <laughs> were you feeling like lost in college or were you having a good time? In the phase that, like, you weren't that into school, but were, like, smoking pot a lot? Um, I didn't feel lost. I was like, this is what I was meant to do. I was meant to be in New York and do a lot of cocaine, smoke a lot of weed, <laughs> and drink a bunch. That's what I was meant to do. Like, I ran through so much money my first year of school because my dad sent me and my sister to school with my mom's Social Security that we got after she passed away, which was, like... A good, it was like $60,000. It was like a good amount of money. And I ran through that in a year. Because I was like, cocaine! <laughs> <laughs> I love the cocaine! <laughs> and, uh, and I just really loved it. I was like, partying is everything. I could stay out all night. And then I got pizza for breakfast. And it was great. And my second semester, my dad was like, well, I guess you... Or not my second semester, my third semester. Because it's only four semesters. It's like a... You go for two years, and then you can transfer to a new school university and start as a junior, allegedly, but they're in the middle of a lawsuit, because that's not true. Okay. You start as, like, a like a freshman and a half. It sucks. Um, so I worked at Lane Bryant part-time, which is a plus-size lady store. I worked there part-time my second year of school, my third and fourth semester, and that was tough. Had I just been a smarter person and spent less money and partied a little less... I would have just been okay, and I wouldn't have had to work at all my first uh, two years in New York. So how long were you doing cocaine for? I did cocaine pretty consistently from, I guess, I went to college at 18, so like 18 to 20. Like, every day, every night. Uh, and the guy we would get it from was like a delivery service, and you'd get it, sometimes he'd be in a limo, and you like get in this limo and it would like take you around the block and he'd drop you off not where you, he picked you up and then <laughs> like walk back to where you were. That's not very convenient. No, it wasn't. It was terrible. But it was great cocaine, it was great blows, 
just wonderful. And we would go to this bar called the, called the Blarney Stone, which is on like 47th and 8th, because they didn't card, and they let us just drink insane. Like, it was very irresponsible of them to let us drink as much as they let us drink. Like, my drink of choice was a Long Island iced tea, no ice, no Coke. So it was just gin, vodka, tequila, and whiskey. I think those are the ingredients. It's like four liquors. Um, but I stopped doing cocaine. There was one night we, I came into the city. It was, I think it was the summer after my fourth semester. And in between me moving in with my friend, black and white Amanda, these two girls, both named Amanda. One was black, one was white. So we called <laughs> so her. So her name was, ended up being white Amanda <laughs> and black Amanda. She's still on my phone as black Amanda. <laughs> and she'll never not be black Amanda. Uh, <laughs> So I like came into the city and got an eight ball or like an eighth, which is like, it's not a lot. I think it's like two and a half grams of cocaine. And we did the whole thing in like one night. And I like did mine to myself and I got greedy and I like didn't share. And I was just like, are we going to party more? And then my friends were like, no, we're going to go home. And I was like, well, I have to go home to New Jersey. This sucks. And then I like got on the train, the New Jersey transit. Went back to Jersey. I'm sure I looked very cracked out of my brain. Like, it was like 7 or 8 a.m. People were, like, going to work, and I was just like, nah, I'm going home. And then I got in my car because I was like, I can't sleep. I can't sleep. And then I just, like, drove around Middletown, New Jersey. And then I got home, and I cleaned my car out. I cleaned our garage. I cleaned, like, the downstairs of my dad's house. And I was just like... I, I can't sleep. I can't sleep. So I went to the grocery store and I got Corsita and Coffin Cold, which will like put you to sleep. It's like a, it's kind of like NyQuil, but like not really. It's just like cold medication that makes you drowsy. So I took a whole box of that to go to sleep. I don't know why I took the whole box. And then I fell asleep for like three days. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. Like I. That's actually, that's alarming. <laughs> I know. I like fell asleep. And I like, I guess I stopped cleaning my room midway through because my mom had gotten us these couches in our room and they had a pull-out bed for when people slept over and mine still had the, the plastic on it because I never used it. So I fell asleep on the plastic and then like I woke up, I don't know, 10, 15 hours later and like my face was stuck to the plastic and I had like a hundred missed calls from my friends. They were like, where are you? And I ignored all that and went right back to sleep. <laughs> I literally slept for like three days. And I don't know why my dad wasn't like, are you okay? What is happening? I think he just didn't want to know the answers after a while. So he just stopped asking, which is fine, but like not really. And then that was like the last time I like really did coke. Um, I also, I think I've heard you talk about that you at some point married an Indian man. Yes. Uh, around this age? What was that? <laughs> yeah, I married a small Indian man named Parvez Muhammad. I'm like 5'6", five, 5'7", five, he was like 5'5", five, five, maybe 5'6". Five, and I had gotten 30 grand, this is after college, I was living in my first apartment in New York, which was a four bedroom, one bathroom, and it was on a slant. So like when people came over, they would get nauseous because the like this the molding and stuff would be straight but you would be at an angle and if you stared at it long enough you'd be like this is not this is making me ill 
but we lived there, so we were like, eh, you get used to it, sit down. <laughs> so I, uh, I had gotten 30 grand in debt, and it's because I had a credit card that was actually my dad's, but it was just he, I had a card with his account. Yes. So it looked like this 19-year-old or 20-year-old was making these huge purchases and paying them off every month. So anytime I applied for a credit card, they gave it to me with like, a $5,000 to $10,000 limit. And then when I maxed it out, I would call and be like, can I have more money? And they'd be like, yes. Because in high school, I went to performing arts college, so there was no like real classes. But in high school, it was like, here, let's learn about photosynthesis and not about how credit cards work. And they should teach you that like, if you spend $100 on a credit card and pay the minimum, it will literally take you 10 years to pay that off because the interest adds on. So you're like back at like a hundred, even after you've made a payment, it's nuts. And nobody explained that to me. And I was like, buy now, pay later. <laughs> and then the more you spend, the more your minimum goes up. So then it was just this like really bad situation where I was like, I don't, I don't have any means to pay any of this back. Also, I have nothing to show for it. Like I, it wasn't like I bought a bunch of clothes or like I had a car. I just had a lot of nights that I don't remember. <laughs> like I'd be like, shots for everybody. And then the bar, like I'd get my tab and it'd be like $300 and I'd be like, buy now, pay later. <laughs> and um, I like came up with this brilliant idea. I was like, I'm going to marry someone for money. They're going to get a green card and they're going to pay me. So I went on Craigslist and I didn't post anything because I didn't want to get in trouble. So, and like other people would post these things. So I, this is my thought process. It's so stupid because it could have been a cop that's like, you know, I'm going to write this Craigslist thing and then I'm going to capture these poor women. I don't know. That's, I figured if I posted something, a cop could answer and I, I would get in trouble. So I was going to answer this Craigslist ad. So I met this guy in New Jersey. He was an older man, maybe some sort of Hispanic. I don't quite remember, but he... He got very aggressive with me very quickly. So then I was like, hey man, I don't feel comfortable with you or like doing this. And then he like called me a bitch. And then like I got back on the path train and went back to New York. And I was like, oh man, that was tough. Gotta get back on Craigslist and find somebody <laughs> else. And then I met this guy. I can't remember his name. Oh, he was like Korean and lived in Williamsburg. And we met at this... Uh, at this Chinese restaurant in Union Square and we like interviewed each other and he was like my age and he was like super cool but he like had me until he said he was like you have to move in with me and I was like oh I am happy to like forward my mail to your place and like make appearances at your place uh, I don't want to live with you and he's like well how can we be married if you have another apartment and your, your name is on that lease and I was just like we can just say, because it's only going to take, it only takes like a year or two to like get your green card. So I was like, we can just say that I'm keeping my apartment because we don't know exactly where we want to live. And he was like, that doesn't work because I'm in Brooklyn. I was like, yeah, but like, maybe we can just lie and say that like, that's where my studio is. I was like, there's so many things we can come up with. And he's like, the deal breaker is you're not moving in with me and you need to sleep with, in my bed and like be my wife. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> no. 
no, I don't want to like, I'm not fucking you. I can't do this. This is terrible. So then we went our separate ways and he like called me a couple times after and I didn't pick up because I was like, no, man, I don't want to be your wife. I want money. And um, during this time, my roommate had married a guy. She like took my idea. She hijacked my fucking idea and she married this Brazilian guy. Wait, is this one of, like, white Amanda? <laughs> no, this isn't white Amanda. This, I lived with white and black Amanda for, like, six months. Okay. And then white Amanda had to move back to Michigan, and then it was just me and black Amanda. And then we went our separate ways. Uh, she fucked me over with an apartment, but we won't get into that. Uh, so then my other roommate, I won't say her name, she... We're still friends, that's why I won't say her name. She married this guy, and I was like, you took my idea, this sucks. Like, this is what I wanted to do. And she was like, well, I'll find you somebody. She was Southern. And I was like, fine, yeah, help me find someone. So she and her friend, who I called Pikachu, but her real name was Patricia. Pikachu's just more fun than Patricia. And they were at a gas station in Queens. And this guy goes, you girls are so lovely. I would love for you to marry me so I can stay in this country. And they're like, we have someone if you're really serious about it. And he's like, I am. <laughs> so then they picked me up in her, I think it was a Chevy HH, which looks like a PT Cruiser and it's a gross car. So they pick me up in this gross car, take me to like the outskirts of Queens. I meet Parvez and he's like, you seem so nice. And I was like, you seem like you got money. He's like, I do. And I was like, okay, let's do it. <laughs> so then literally, I think... Two days later, we went to City Hall and got our, like, got our marriage certificate. Like, we essentially got married and then, or filed for it. And then we came back, like, three days later and then got married in front of, the, like, a justice of peace. Her name was Dory. And I'll never forget. And she was like, oh, y'all look so happy together. Now you kiss. And I was like, I've only known this man for, like, six days. And now I have to kiss him. Our kiss is very, it's, I have a picture of it, it's in storage, but it's the most awkward looking kiss in the world. Really? I would <laughs> yeah. love to see that picture. Because I have like blue eyes and bangs, because I went through a phase where I only wore blue contact lenses, so I had blue eyes, bangs that weren't done very well, and I'm wearing this David's Bridal dress and weird ballet slippers, and then I'm wearing a coat, I think, in the picture, because it was cold. Um, and then my friend who had married the Brazilian guy, my roommate, was my witness, and then his witness was this guy in this huge turban. So the pictures literally just look insane. Um, and then we were married for a year. And then, oh, so I was 20 when this happened, because my dad passed away June when I was 21. When my dad died, I told him I needed a little bit more time, and he said, take all the time you need. And I said, okay. So then... Uh, I think I called him, that was in June, I think I called him in, like, September, October, because, like, I was trying to settle, like, sell his house and clean the house and settle all of his money and whatever stuff, because he didn't have a will, so then it was just, like, a lot of work, and then I, like, called him, he doesn't return my calls, I keep calling him, he doesn't return my calls, he calls me and leaves me a message, and he's like, you're a bitch, and I was like, what is happening, and I was like, can you just... And I left him a message, I was like, can you just call me so we can talk? And then I didn't hear anything from him. And we had done, like, one interview, so I don't know if he had gotten his green card and, like, didn't need me anymore. <clears throat> he also only paid me half, so this may have been, like, you're a bitch, like, I'm not paying you the rest, or mm. you took too long, like, I don't know. Because he, he didn't contact me when I, was, when I told him I needed time. So I don't know quite what happened in our relationship, 
but uh, since I was just like still married to this man, uh, I like talked to a lawyer in Jersey or like, who was it? Oh, it was the state lawyer. I was just like, do you know offhand if like you need your spouse to get a divorce? And she was like, not if you're a resident of New Jersey. All you have to do is serve him papers. As long as he accepts them, you're granted a divorce. And I was like, oh, okay. And she's like, are you trying to get divorced? And I was like, yes. <laughs> so then the woman who was tying up my dad's estate uh, helped me file for divorce from my husband. And then we served him papers and he accepted them. And uh, he was notified where he could show up at court. He didn't come. And then I was granted a divorce. So did anything good come out of uh, this relationship? And... <laughs> marriage <laughs> yes uh two good things came out of it i got my hair done got a new weave and i started taking improv classes because i was so far into debt by the time i had heard about ucb and the pit and the magnet which are like the three big schools in new york when i started now there's like the annoyance and other shit uh i didn't have any money because all my cards are maxed out so then i had this money and i put it in my bank account and then i immediately signed up for classes and then loved classes so much that like I kept signing up for classes with the money that he gave me. Had you seen UCB shows before you started taking classes? Nope. So how'd you hear about it? Um, I, I had heard that, well in school we had an improv class. It was like improv that you would then use in your scene work. And then our teacher mentioned, that he was like, there's just places that do improv and you're very funny and you're good at it. And you should look into those theaters that just do improv. And I was like, oh, okay. And then I guess like four years had passed since then, or like two years. Because I started in 08. Two years, because I graduated in 06. And I started improv in 08. So I was just like Googling improv in New York, and the pit came up first. And then I applied to be an intern. And then they had too many interns or something, so then I was like, fuck the pit. I have no idea why that was my mindset. I was just like, ah, fuck it. <laughs> and then I found UCB, and then you had to have, like, maybe already taken a class to be an intern, so I was like, oh, fuck it, I'll just, I'll just pay for it. Also, the pit's website was hard to navigate, and I think maybe UCB's was, like, a little bit easier. And it was very, it's pretty arbitrary how I ended up at uh, UCB and not the pit or the magnet. Um, and then I, I signed up for classes and I loved it. And how, when did Doppelgangers come about? That was... That's a team that you did with Sashir. Sashir's Ameda. Uh, Sashir and Keisha Zoller. Uh, we came about in, I believe, 2009 or 2010. So it was um, before you'd ever made it onto a team or anything at UCB? Yes. Uh... I had gone through all the classes and then I started working at the training center and I had auditioned for Harold Knight and I got to the callback round because I had a really great, Sashir and I auditioned together and we're just very good together. And in my callback, they separated us. I think all, both of us, all three of us were separated because at that time we had been known to be a good team and we had one cage match a bunch which was very hard for non-weekend teams to do. It's weird because out here there are no weekend teams. And in New York, you go from Herald Night to a weekend team, and that's like your graduate. Like, last day of school is considered, to me, a weekend team. Yeah. They're like a house team or whatever. Um, so then, during my callback, like, I just, I didn't shit the bed. I just, like, 
kept setting up really great games and not playing them. I'd be like, oh, this is a fun time. Oh, I don't know how to do that. So I didn't get put on a team. And then, oh, wait, were we, were we a team? Yeah. So then we just like, oh, maybe then after that we won cage match a bunch. I don't remember. But like, we just were a very good team. We really liked playing together. And it was just kind of like magical. It was one of those things where like our first show was magic. And then our second show was magic. And then we've done hundreds of shows. And I would say maybe three of them were shitty. Maybe. Not to like toot my own horn, but like we're just very good together. Tell me if I'm wrong. The name Doppelgangers is like a joke because... Doppelganger is kind of... It's like, yeah, it's a joke because people would confuse Keisha and Sashir a lot. Sometimes they would confuse all of us a lot, but usually it was Keisha and Sashir. And I think Sashir... Maybe Keisha was the one who came up with it. It definitely wasn't me because, oh, at first we were two separate teams. I was a two-man team with Sashir, and Sashir was a two-man team with Keisha. And then she's like, it's too hard to do, to, like, keep booking shows with just one or the other. Let's do this together. And I was like, well, I trust Sashir's judgment. And then it just worked. And Sashir and I were Rainy Boots, I think. I think that, oh, no. She was Rainy Boots with Keisha, and we were the Sleevettes, which makes no sense. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And then we became Doppelganger. Uh, what was your experience, in, in your experience going through UCB, mm-hmm. what is it just like mostly that your classes were with like white males or what was like the largest like breakdown of, what was the general breakdown of race? Um, it was a lot of white people. My 101 class was in the summer, uh, cause it was the summer my dad died. Uh, he died like, I think my second class. And Sylvia Ozels was my teacher, and she was like, oh, you missed class last week, where were you? And for whatever reason, I could not make up anything. I was like, oh, my dad died. And she was like, oh, uh, God, uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> but uh, that class was a bunch of white kid, college kids, because they were taking like classes, I don't know, on their college break. And then my 201 class was filled with a bunch of old people. <laughs> It was, uh, like, this woman, Susie, who I'm still very good friends with, who was, like, I think she's in her 40s or maybe 50s. Uh, this guy, Alex, who I ended up babysitting for. It's interesting. Like, that class was my very first team, and I was the youngest person on that team. I was, like, 21, and then the next person was 35. Whoa. And then the oldest person was, like, 40. That's a funny, fluky thing. Yeah, it was super weird. To be in the old person class. Yeah. <laughs> but I really loved them, and they were really funny, and, like, I didn't get any of their references. It was great. <laughs> Um, and then, and we were all still pretty close, we still talk, and I sit on the couch of one of those people who moved out here, Lemon, who's older, I think she's 38 maybe, I don't know. Uh, so like, that was, that was like a weird class where just everyone just was older, and then my 301 was a bunch of white people, uh, 401, a bunch of white people. I had never seen another black person in my class until maybe my fifth or sixth class it was like a black woman and I was like this is crazy how are you this is nuts um but yeah it was weird to not have and then there were no black people on stage there was one Asian woman on Herald Night and then there was a, a black girl on Mod Night I think when I started and from your perspective how does that feel like, being so much in the minority of a community? It's very weird because a lot of people say to me now, they'll be like, 
I watch you and I, I feel empowered and I can do it. I'm not one of those people. I was never one of those people that was like, I have to see myself on stage in order to like do something. I would watch Death by Ruru, which was like Pally Gabriel, or not Gabriel, Pally, uh, Gelman, uh, Gemberling, like all those guys. And I would be like that. I want to do what they're doing. Like, like race didn't matter to me. Like funny mattered to me. I was like, I just want to be funny like them. But also growing up, I really loved Storm from the X-Men. And I was like, Storm can do anything. So can I. So maybe that just, I've carried that on just in my heart my whole life. Yeah. It's like, I don't know, I'm Storm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Storm from the next one. I'll do anything I want. Um, but I do think it's healthy for people of color or differently abled people to see themselves on stage. So it didn't affect me personally, but like I can see how it would affect other people. Very cool. Um... So what was your first, like, other than getting on, like, a Herald team or winning a bunch of cage matches, what was your first, like, professional success? Um, I mean, my very, very first professional success, I think, was, like, a landline video, or a co- which was, like, College Humor, maybe before College Humor was a thing. Or maybe they were a thing at the same time. I don't know. But it's like a like a comedy website. I got paid 50 bucks to be in a in some video. And I was like, I'm a working actress. This is my life now. Life is great. Uh, but like a real professional success was I got to do 30 Rock. And that was, that was just really, really cool. That was like the first time I left an audition. And I called my manager. And I said, oh no. He called me with audition before I even went in. I was like, oh, this is going to be fun. And he's like, what do you mean? I was like, well, when I book this, this is going to be fun. He's like, well, don't do that to yourself. Don't just say you're going to book it. And the role was a Monique lookalike. And I was like, nobody does a better Monique impression of me in this city, and I know it. And he was like, you're being real cocky. You can't do that. And I was like, whatever. And then I went to the audition, and I did really well. And I called him, and I was like, if I don't book this, they went older. And he was like, okay, Nicole. And he called me the next day, and he's like, you booked it. And I was like, I know. <laughs> I've never been cocky about anything else in my life. Maybe that's why I don't book, because I'm not cocky. I don't know. But, um, and then, like, I got to do it. And then I, like, said something, and Tina laughed at a couple things I said. And I was like, I can die. I can legit just die. This feels so good. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, it felt so good. It was like, it was cool. <laughs> So, what was the road to Girl Code from there? The road to Girl Code was this woman, Sachi, who I had done improv with a couple times, was a producer on the show, or something on the show, and she called me in for an audition, and when I got the audition, I was like, I don't really understand what this show is. Like, I don't get it. I'd never seen Guy Code, which is a thing that existed before on MTV2, and I, like, watched a couple episodes, and I was like, oh, I guess it's, like, best week ever? Okay, whatever. And then I was coming back from a Torco, it used to be Torco thing, and we were on JetBlue, and we were, like, in the back of the plane, and our flight attendant loved Don Finelli, who's a New York improviser, and he kept being like, ooh, mm, yes, 23F. And I'd be like, I know, he's real cute, right? And he was like, yes. And then he was like, do you want a drink? And I was like, yeah. So he, he was like, give me your purse. I give him my purse, and he just throws a bunch of vodka in it. I was like, this is great. He's like, I don't care today. And I was like, okay. So then I, like, drank a couple of them, and then 
didn't anticipate how quick the flight was. And then, because it was from Florida to New York, and he gave it to me midway through. And then I got off the plane, I was like, oh, I'm kind of drunk. And I was like, oh, but I have to go to this audition. Oh, I'll just get in a cab. I don't know. So I got in a cab, went, and I guess it worked in my favor, because I was just, like, a little all over the place. And I guess they were like, we like this mess. <laughs> She's funny. <laughs> and then the first, the first thing I recorded, I was like, I guess I have to be the same as I was at the audition. So I guess I'll drink <laughs> before I go in. So I had, like, a little thing of whiskey. And then I was like, oh, that was the worst idea of my life. Like, this, I didn't feel good or funny or, like, anything. And uh, I don't even know if it's, if it's the very first episode. It might be later because we shot them out of order. But then I was just like, oh, no, sober Nicole is fine Nicole. So I shoot all of them sober. That's a good lesson. Because uh... people ask me all the time if I'm drunk on them. <laughs> no. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. People always consistently think I'm drunk. When I'll do college shows, and sometimes I want you to fill an hour, and I only really have, like, 30 to 40 minutes of material, so I'll do, like, a question and answer after, and they always are like, Hi, are you drunk right now? <laughs> I'm like, no. No, I just, I, maybe I love life too much, so it seems like I'm drunk, but I'm not. So was Girl Code what made you start to get, like, recognized out in the world, and like, uh, brought you to, like, another stage of your career? Oh, yeah, yeah. I owe everything to Girl Code. The only reason why people know who I am and let me do things is because of Girl Code, and it's really cool. Yeah, how did that feel as it was happening? Um, it's, you know, like, how people call, they're, like, they're an overnight sensation, and that's never true. It's always, like, someone has been hustling for, like, a long, long time. I've been doing comedy for, like, six years, like, every night of the week, and just, like, working my ass off and, like, doing a lot of free shit. And then one night the show aired and I had, like, I went from, like, maybe 500 Twitter followers to, like, 100,000. And then, like, my phone, I couldn't use it for a minute because it was, like, blowing up so hardcore. And I was like, this is nuts. Blowing up with what? Like, tweets and Instagram followers. And then, like, people texting me, like, congratulations. And it was just... Because I guess, like... The first season, no one had seen anything like that. Like, women speaking so candidly about women's stuff. So, I think it was, like, not revolutionary, but, like, but like pretty pretty insane. Because, like, I don't know, a lot of, like, women's... Like, I have very rarely do hear someone talk about periods openly on TV. Because it's a lot of male writers who are just like, periods? Ew! And it's like, it's just blood. It's not that bad. But, uh, I mean, it is gross. But it's it's fine to talk about. Um, so, like, I do think, like, it, it, like, it empowered women a little bit. And then people seemed to really like me. There was, like, three of us that people really liked. It was, like, me, Carly, and Jess and May. And I always think it's weird when people like me because I'm, like, I'm just, I tell the I just, it's all true things. You, yeah. When I was first watching Girl Code, like, a couple years ago, I was like, you really stand out on this show. <laughs> I think it's because... It's really funny. <laughs> well, I also don't have the same opinion as some girls. Like, a lot of girls will fall into, like, a slut-shaming thing or be like, well, you know, don't be nasty in front of guys. And I'm like, ugh, ugh. Just, like, live the life you want to live. Like, if you want to be a nasty bitch, be a nasty... <laughs> just do it. So I think that's why I stand out because a lot of the time I'll be like, no, <laughs> no. 
And you're very, very funny. Oh, thank you. <laughs> uh, um, and did Girl Code lead to, like, a stand-up career? Mm-hmm. I had never done stand-up before Girl Code, but a lot of the girls on Girl Code are stand-up, so then college is... Uh, the show really resonates with, like, college-age people. So I kept getting offers. They were like, they'll pay you X amount of money for you to come do 20 to 30 minutes of stand-up. And I was like, that's scary. I haven't even done a one-person show because that scares me so much. And then my manager was like, Nicole, this is people, like, putting money on a table and then you actively not walking to it. And I was like, okay, I'll try it. I was like, I'll do one, and if it goes okay, I'll do more. So then I did the one, and... What they don't tell you is they already know who you are, so they're already on your side. So, like, I messed up one joke, and I just went, oh, fuck. And then the crowd went, yeah! And I was like, oh, you guys are really easy. I just said, fuck, you guys got so excited. And then they got excited again. And I was like, oh, I get this. Okay. So the whole first year I was doing stand-up, I had maybe maybe 15 minutes of material, like, of good material, maybe, not even, and then the rest was, like, filler and fluff, and now I've got, like, a solid 25 to 30 that I'm, like, very proud of, and my manager's always like, let's submit to the half hour, the Comedy Central half hour, and I'm like, yes. no, no, because once you do that, you should have another 30 minutes that you have, like, oh, wow. the, yeah, that, because... Once it's on TV, you try not to do that whole set over and over again, because then people are like, well, I just saw that on TV. I can see that online. Why do I want to see it live? So... <laughs> so you will do that eventually, but you need a full hour before you do I a would, half hour? I would really love to have a full hour before I had a half hour. Oh, I don't... Stand-up is very... It's hard. And I prefer doing improv and sketch. I do like doing stand-up, but... It's hard to generate material when you're not doing it as often. And I, I'm not in town a lot for me to, like, your show, like, I want to fucking do. But I seem to be, oh, wait, I'm in town this week. Can I do it this week? Yes. Great. <laughs> <laughs> Nicole Byer, live at Think Tank, July 8th. Uh, it's just hard to, like, get on shows. And then, like, you try to get on, like, higher profile shows. And then... Like, Meltdown, like, I've never done Meltdown, and I'm doing that in August, which is, like, I'm very excited about. But then I'm like, ugh, I don't want to do any new stuff at these higher-profile shows, because what if it doesn't work? And then you're like, but I'm not tired of my old stuff, I just know that that works. So stand-up is a very hard It does piece. sound complicated and scary. Yeah. And, and makes me want to, like, <laughs> take a while before yeah, I, I dive into it in a bigger way. I don't know, I think just take the plunge, you're very funny. Um, and you're a good writer. I like my whole. I'm having a lot of fun at Think Tank because like I can just go try five minutes mm -hmm. any week and like slowly and be writing down like the stuff that works best mm -hmm. and then like slowly Do you like record form a, I don't. So I really should. Oh, what have I been doing? Because that's what I did the whole first year. I, like, because uh, I don't. I'm not like a writer, writer, and I'm not great at like writing jokes. So yeah. if I have like a nugget of, of an idea. I'll say it, and I'll be like, oh, people laughed at that part, but not this part. So I guess if I put That's this That's so smart. Here, I got to start. And yeah. also, ho I host it a lot of the time, mm -hmm. and that helps so much. Cause Hosting I helps just, a lot. I, I like riff on anything somebody else has been talking about, mm -hmm. and I realize, like, oh, this is a bit I should definitely do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Sam is a very, very weird beast. Because Sketch, it's like, 
you write a sketch and you're like, this will either kill or not kill. Who knows? But like stand up, you'll do the same set in uh, L.A., Chicago, Jersey, and New York, and I'll kill in New Jersey. Or no, I'll kill in L.A., I'll kill in New York, I'll go over okay in Chicago, and then I'll fall flat in Jersey, and you're like, but it's the same stuff. Yeah, what's happening? It's crowds. It's just the mood of the it's audience. It's just the mood of the audience. Uh, it depends on who's in the audience. Um, like, sometimes black rooms don't like me because of the way I sound. Um, sometimes you'll do it in front of college kids who are just, like, so over it. And then sometimes they just want you to parrot what you say on TV back to them. And they weren't expecting that you wrote jokes. So it's a... Uh, and you can't let any of that affect you. You have to just, like, keep going. It's very weird. It's very weird. Yeah. But um, I like it. I, like I mean, I'm taking your... <laughs> I'm taking your... Uh, word for the fact that it's very weird. <laughs> yeah, it's nuts. It's very, it's very, very strange. So what's, in the last couple of years, the most exciting thing, like, career-wise, that you feel like has happened? Um... I would say, like, I got to work with Seth Rogen, which was really cool. Um, MTV, for the movie awards two years, or whenever the interview came out, they did... Did you see the interview? Yes. So, you know, James Franco's character, Dave Skylark, has that show. It's like Entertainment Tonight or whatever. So they did, like, a 30-minute... 30 minutes of, like, what that show would be like, where he interviews four celebrities. And I just played one of the people who worked in a control room. And it was, like, cool. And they did these, like, meet-the-character-type things that were only online. So it was, like, Seth Rogen standing next to the camera asking me questions, and I got to answer them, and he laughed at a couple of them. And I was just like, this is... This is nuts. This yeah, that's is so cool. insane. This is cool as fuck. And uh, they ended up liking some of the stuff that I did, or that that was done, uh, that I was in, so they left it, they used it as commercials for the interview, so then people started texting me, and they're like, congrats, you're in the fucking interview, and I was like, nope, nope, uh, I am not, unless I go back and re-edit that movie, I am not in it, uh, I just happened to be in these weird commercials, <laughs> uh, but it, like, felt good to work with him, and that was, like, super cool. And what do you most hope, like, will happen in, in, like, what would be the, yeah, your biggest hope for, like, what the next stage of your career would be? Um, I think I've been in, for, like, the last year and a half, I've been very much into, like, what is next? Which is kind of shitty that I'm not, like, enjoying what's happening now, because I'm still doing well. Um, but I really, I, like, I want to be unscripted. I don't want to do unscripted, and I keep getting unscripted offers, and I keep, I think my manager thinks I'm crazy, because I keep turning down very large amounts of money because I don't want to do unscripted stuff and I'm comfortable now I have no overhead like my life is very cheap and uh I just really want like a career divine scripted something like not something that's gonna like pigeonhole me not something like friends or something where it's like I can't really think of these people outside of like David Schwimmer like I don't know like I don't think of anything as that friends man yes also I barely watch friends um but like right, you thought his character's name was that friends man yeah <laughs> You know David Schwimmer on Friends? He plays that Friends man. He, he's never anything but that Friends man. Uh, like, I don't... Him in particular, and also kind of Chandler. What's his name in real life? 
uh, Matthew Perry. Yeah, I really don't think of him as anything but Chandler. Not right. an asshole. But, uh, so you don't want to be pigeonholed. No, I don't want to be pigeonholed, but I would like something career-defining where it's like, oh, not only is she funny as herself, she's funny as a character, and she's a good actress. And that's, that's what I would like. Whether I write it or if it's something that was written by somebody else. I hope it happens for you soon. Oh, thank you. Uh, yeah, I hope so. What is your week? What is, what is your life like, like day to day in like a typical week for you, like? Um, typical weeks are very very strange for me, because sometimes I work, all week. So if I'm shooting Girl Code, I'll be in New York and I'll shoot from like noon to like six or something and then I'll like go out with a friend or I'll try to work out or I'll try to do that or if I'm working here on something it's like you work all day like whenever I work it's for chunks I don't know why anything I book anytime I book something it's just for like a big chunk of time and then then there's nothing there's I don't do anything for a full week and then if I'm on the road but your version of nothing is like you're doing a mod show, oh, and yes. you're... <laughs> yeah. yeah, my version of nothing is I have a show every night of the week, but I'm not really doing anything during the day because I'm not working. And then I have weeks where I will... Like, when I was on Herald Night, I would leave... I, we, I would do our show on Monday, get on a plane, go shoot or go do a show... And then, like, come back and do Harold Night Matinee. And sometimes with Mod Night, I will... Oh, this one was the worst. This may have been our Christmas show. But I... Our show's on Wednesday, so... Oh, wait, no, this wasn't it. But there's been times where, like, I've done a show on Tuesday night, gotten on a plane Wednesday, landed here at 11, taken a nap, gone to tech, taken a nap, done our show. And those are the shows where sometimes I, like, my brain will just be like... During our Christmas show, I blinked real hard... Because the line was, I want his candy cane dick. And I went, I want his ca- his cotton candy dick. <laughs> and then I looked at Mary Helen and I went, that's not Christmas. And she went, it's okay. <laughs> just like very much just, out of character yeah. on stage. But that's amazing. Like, it's okay. <laughs> I was just like, It sounds oh, like a boy. great moment. <laughs> but yeah, sometimes I'll have like brain farts and then I'll be like kind of part of myself. And then I'll be like, wait a minute. No. You just, you were in a different state in a different time zone hours before. It's okay. You're being whisked around the United States like nobody was ever meant to. (laughs) There was one week where on Monday I was in like Jersey and then Tuesday, Wednesday, Colorado. And then like Thursday I had to go back to the East Coast. The way it was booked sucked because it was just like, like just back and forth. And then when I got back here... I think I had, like, a show, and I was just like, I want to die. <laughs> this is terrible. But I'm. it's a fun life, and I'm having fun, and I like it. I live at the airport, though. I think I flew, I think, like, 300,000 miles last year. 300,000? Uh-huh. Are you... Do, <laughs> Which is so much. Have you entered, and how many miles, like, across your life do you know? No, I don't know, because it restarts every year. But I'm Diamond Medallion on Delta, which is the highest you can be. And then you have to fill a certain amount of miles for it to be next year. Next year, I'm also Diamond Medallion. I'll probably lose my status next, next year. That's not fair. You shouldn't lose. Yeah, if you don't keep traveling, you'll lose your status. 
So you like it, but what would you edit in your like day to day life to make it perfect for you? It would be that you would be on a scripted TV show, mm-hmm. and you would you travel less. Yes, I I would have to travel less because I'd have to be here to shoot the scripted show. But I don't mind traveling so much. But sometimes I do because I miss things here. Uh huh. Like for whatever, like they did essentially like a RuPaul's Drag Race at UCB. And I missed it. And they were like, do you want to judge it? And I was like, of course I want to judge it. All I like are drag queens. But I couldn't because I was doing some some school. So yeah, if I could edit my life, it would be to be on a scripted show. And then to be in L.A. more. Because I like L.A. I've made very good friends here, and I like it. Uh, if somebody you cared about... Uh like, had just graduated college and moved to L.A., and you wanted to give them advice about, like, how to tackle everything, mm-hmm. what would your advice be? I think my advice would be to find your tribe, which is, like, such a weird thing to say, but, like, figure out what you want to do and find those people who are doing it and get in good with them. Because then it just, like, like wanting to do comedy and finding UCV was just, like, well, this is it. This is this is what I wanted. This is what I needed to be around people who are doing what I want to be doing. Some are more successful. Some aren't so successful. But, like, we're all doing the same thing. And then, like, there's something to be said that, like, you know, the Adam Pallies of the world or, like, the Gemberlings or, like, all those people who, like, make money acting. Still, they did DCM. They still come back to do free shows for a bunch of idiots. Like, I think it speaks volumes to how, like, awesome and wonderful this community is. So, like, I would say find your community, figure out what you want to do, and then do it. Don't talk about it, just do it. That's beautiful. Thank you! <laughs> um, so you've obviously done really well. Uh, what are your, like, insecurities about, like, or worries about what your career, like what might happen to your career at this point? I get very scared and worried that like all of this will go away. Like I will wake up one day and MTV will be like, we hate you. And I'll be like, why? What did I do? Or like whatever I get a call from my manager and it's his assistant and he's like, I have Avi, that's my manager. And then your agent, Ariel and John, they're on the phone. I'm like, they're all going to drop me. They're all going to drop me at one time. They hate me. I always, I, I know I'm funny and I know I do things well, but in the back of my brain, I'm like, something bad's going to happen. Like, this is all going to go away. This is too good. Like, I'm living too good. That's my fear. And uh, conversely, like, what's, like, been your proudest moment recently of feeling like you're really cool? Um, <laughs> this doesn't sound so lame, but Doppelganger got a standing ovation at DCM, and I've never had people stand up for me performing anywhere, and we had a really good show, and I was like, oh, this is great, and then, like, hours before, Sashir and I, Sashir replaced me on my old Herald team in New York, and whenever I'm in New York, they let me play with them, and, because they're now on the weekend, they got moved, graduated, if you will, and we had done a show, and it was, like, a really solid mono scene that was, like, Super patient. I'll tell you the premise because I think it's funny. I played an, oh, like a 97-year-old woman named Big Mama who was having her birthday at a nursing home and all she wanted was her family to come. 
but all the other old people came and none of her family. It was very <laughs> funny. Um, and it was just like, it was just like a really great, like I had two really great shows and I was just like, I really love improv. As nerdy as it sounds, as stupid as it sounds, like I really love doing this and I could have all this success in the world, but if someone told me I couldn't improvise anymore, I would be so sad. I could be like Julia Roberts, and if they were like, you can't improvise, I'd be like, why am I a white woman, and why can't I play? <laughs> That's where your real happiness is. <laughs> yeah, I really love doing improv. I love making things up. I love being surprised. The best is when you're in a scene and someone says something that surprises you, and then you just like see it in their eyes that they surprise themselves. It's just, it's magical. That's, yeah, that's fantastic. I love it. It's so, so stupid, but I do. Uh, Nicole, thank you so much for coming thank on. Thank you. You're, you're the absolute best. You're the best. <laughs> I still have to buy your wedding present. Oh, pish posh. <laughs> <laughs> no, I do. And it's a, I don't know why I haven't sent, oh, I know why. Because every time I go to put the credit card information in, my purse is across the room. Because I still have this tab open on my computer. Because I'm getting, I already told you what I'm getting you. It's ice cream. <laughs> well, that's uh, the best gift. Wait for my interview with Nicole Byer. How lucky am I to know Nicole? Very lucky. Uh, if you want to see Nicole perform live, you can see her performing with my sketch team, New Money, the second Wednesday of every month at UCB Sunset in Los Angeles. Or you can see her with her group, Search History, every Sunday night at 11 at UCB Franklin. Thank you guys so much for listening to On the Cusp. If you want to make my day, and it really will make my day, please consider leaving a review for the show on iTunes or rating us. Special thanks to Casey Trila and Hi-Ho Silvero for all the music in this episode, to my sound editor, Joe Burge, and to my producer, Cece, excited for Space Jam 2, Pierce. This has been On the Cusp. That's your outro music.